0: To the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2009. I'm Alana Ranke. Hunter College's Jill Barganetti didn't always want to be a cancer researcher. In fact, she wanted to be a dancer. But the lure of genetics got the best of her, and now she runs a cancer research lab out of Hunter's Department of Biological Sciences. Now, we hear and read a lot about cancer research. We walk and run for it. We fundraise for it. But if you're anything like me, you don't actually know that much about it. So what does it look like in action? Barganetti's lab focuses on P53, an elusive protein found naturally in our cells that when working right, acts as a tumor suppressor. I found Jill Barganetti through CUNY's Serving Science program, where she spoke last week. Today, we're going to check out her lab, meet one of the students working there, and learn about their research, which could mean big things in the fight against cancer.
1: Oh, wow. Today,
0: I'm in the lab of Dr. Jill Barganetti on the ninth floor of one of Hunter College's science buildings. I've come to learn about her cancer research and meet some of the students working here. Ask them
1: whatever questions, but the first question you should ask them is, do they have time to talk (laughs) to you right now?
0: Because they may not, so... Fair um, enough. So what happens on this side? Barganetti's lab is a unique place. As a black female scientist, Barganetti herself is a rarity in her field. She got her PhD at NYU and did her postdoc at Columbia, And while she likely could have taught at any of the world's leading universities, she chose Hunter College, a school focused on teaching. Many of the students in her lab are women, and there's plenty of ethnic diversity. Barkanetti's lab is currently working on three major research projects, all centered around a protein called P53.
1: P53 is a tumor suppressor protein that's produced from a gene by the same name, and P stands for protein and 53 stands for the size of the protein. And what this protein does is a little bit of everything. So I've been working on this protein since 1990 and it's pretty amazing how much it continues to evolve and have many, many different lives. So it's like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. So when it's normal and working well, it can stop cells from growing or it can make cells die. But In a normally growing cell, it's basically absent. You don't really want it there. And when the cell gets a little sick, gets some damage, it gets activated, and it can tell the cell either to stop and repair itself, or if it's just beyond repair, to die. And in cancer cells, it often isn't working. In fact, it is the most frequently inactivated protein gene found in cancers. And when it's not working, the cells can't die or stop growing, and they can grow out of control, and that's what happens in cancers. But even worse, in this Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll scenario, it becomes this Dr. Jekyll, crazy, crazy, out-of-control protein in its mutant form. It becomes an oncogenic variant, and it transforms the cell into... Uh, absolutely crazy growing metastatic type cancer so it does lots of things and sometimes when it's normal it's involved in DNA repair so you can study p53 for a long time and still not really understand all of its functions and all of the players that talk to it and it it speaks many languages so it talks to um, all the other players inside the cell.
0: So if it's working as it should, P53 is a natural tumor suppressor in our bodies. But if P53 suffers mutations, it does way more harm than good. The mutations that cause the damaging Mr. Hyde behavior of P53 come in two basic sorts.
1: There are two different types of mutations that we all get. One is called a familial mutation, which you get at conception, and that means you inherited that mutation, or it was a, a polymorphism, it's around in more of the population, and so you got it at conception from one of your parents. That's rare with P53 that you get a P53 mutant at conception, but it does exist, and people who inherit mutant P53 have something called lee fraumeni syndrome, and they get cancers very, very early. So you can inherit a mutant P53, Most of the time, the mutations in P53 that occur are sporadic. And what sporadic means is you get these mutations, you know, during the course of your lifetime. And usually, P53 mutations are sporadic. And as I said, I got into cancer because it's a clonal disease. So over time, you'll get these mutations in P53. And that one cell that sustains that P53 mutation and doesn't have any normal functioning P53 anymore begins to transform into the Dr. Jekyll.
0: Some of the research Barganetti does is on breast cancer. Estrogen plays a big role in breast cancer. It's a hormone that basically tells cells to grow, but only if the cells are equipped with estrogen receptors. In some forms of breast cancer, the tumor cells have estrogen receptors, which means they basically feed off the hormone as they grow. This type of breast cancer is considered druggable, Women who take tamoxifen are interrupting the activity of estrogen, basically cutting off the food the cancer cells need to survive. This treatment has been fairly successful for more than 10 years. But some breast cancer cells don't have estrogen receptors, which means they don't need estrogen to grow, so tamoxifen doesn't help. For this reason, this type of breast cancer is especially aggressive. These are the cells that Barganetti is interested in. Because it turns out that even though these cancer cells don't need estrogen to grow, estrogen affects the levels of p53.
1: So we are working on a manuscript where we have shown that some of the connection between estrogen and p53 is this ability for estrogen to inactivate the p53 pathway. Not completely, but to dampen it. Mm And we think some of the repression of the p53 pathway is through its yin-yang molecule. So there's a yin-yang that exists between p53 and a molecule called MDM2. So I I like to get people to think about the yin-yang symbol and think about p53 on one side and MDM2 on the other. And if you have a perfect balance, it's fine. But if the MDM2 side gets too big, then the p53 side is no longer in balance and estrogen causes an increase in MDM2. So you no longer have this perfect balance. Clearly that's not the whole story, but it definitely appears to be part of the story. Estrogen does a whole host of other things. Um, Estrogen causes the estrogen receptor to activate a molecule called BCL2, which inhibits cell death so now you've got this inhibitor of cell death you're blocking this activator of cell death so basically you're just not letting cell death happen at all in the presence of estrogen so estrogen is keeping cells from dying that should die so barganetti hypothesizes that p53
0: is being suppressed in cells where estrogen has increased the concentration of this other protein called mdm2 But the relationship between MDM2 and p53 is still largely not understood. For this reason, the National Science Foundation is funding Barganetti's lab to study the basic biological relationship between these two crucial proteins.
1: So MDM2, like p53, has more than one specific function, but the one that it's best known for is causing p53 levels to go down so just keeping p53 at a low level so the cells don't die because you don't want your cells dying all the time right so in a normal situation there's just enough of it that if you need the p53 for the cells to die it can be there but you don't want those cells to die it's just really it's like the seesaw in the middle it's perfect but if you get too much MDM2 then when you need the cells to die, they can't die because it's just blocking that P53. And one way it's blocking it is just by degrading it. It's sort of like washing it away so that MDM2 side of the yin yang's taken over and it's the whole circle and you have no P53 left. Or it's just kind of on top of P53 and keeping it from doing its job. So it can do it two ways.
0: This podcast will return in 30 seconds after a brief message from Science and the City.
1: Science in the City
0: needs your help. Yes, yours. We know you like our podcasts. You're listening right now. But did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science in the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. In her third research project, funded by the NIH, Barconetti is looking at P53 cell death pathways. So, in the case of tumor suppression, P53 is normally responsible for killing cells that are mutant and would turn into tumors if they were allowed to grow. But when P53 isn't present to kill the cell, say that there's too much MDM2 present, scientists have to look for other pathways to
1: kill mutant cells. We are developing a C. elegans model system, and C. elegans are a microscopic worm.
0: Yes, you heard her right, a microscopic worm. It turns out our genome is a lot like these tiny wrigglers.
1: Using this microscopic worm that has no P53, so that's a mutant variant because the normal microscopic worm has P53, but you can make different lines without p53 to look at how p53 is influencing these different cancer programs and worms have 20,000 genes. We have approximately 30,000 genes. They have a lot of genes in common with us. We can really look at these pathways in the worms as a quick screen Also, as an ethical way to do drug testing, um, we're developing a tumor model in these worms that we hope will facilitate looking at how drugs kill tumors that have no P53 in the worm so that we can then do a screen and identify the genes that facilitated that killing so we can then target those genes in cancers that don't have functional P53.
0: Yeah, I do want to see worms. In the lab, Barganetti introduces me to Sandy, a grad student working towards her Ph.D. in biochemistry. Oh, uh, a big refrigerator full of worms. So work. this
2: is um, 20 degrees centigrade, which is about a little cooler than room temperature. Okay. So they pretty much grow at room temperature. They have a reproductive cycle of three days.
0: So we're putting a plate on the microscope. Yeah. Oh my. God. I'm going to look in the microscope. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I can't see anything but a cloudy blur on the tiny petri dish, but when Sandy puts the dish under the microscope, it's crawling with little worms. Ooh, and they really are alive and wriggling. That is
2: actually their first, people's first reaction. It's like, oh my gosh, they're moving. Yeah. But it's like people's first, like when they see them.
0: All right, so you've got these
2: little cultures of worms, and what are you doing with them? So, um, primarily in, um, adult worms their cells somatic cells which are cells except germline cells have arrested okay and their germline is the only part that's actually proliferating so it sort of mimics a tumor a tumor in a human where most adults um, their somatic cells have arrested, and only the tumor is actively proliferating. Okay. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to use different chemotherapeutic agents and trying to induce germline cell death. So So you're, and this is the project where you're trying, because they don't have P53. So I have worms that do not have P53, and I soak them, I treat them with the drugs that we're also treating the tissue culture cells with, and we're looking if we see um, cell death. So by creating
0: strains of these C. elegans worms without the P53 protein, Sandy is able to try and figure out different ways to kill the mock cancer cells. Did you always dream to be a researcher who used microscopic worms? Not really. I
2: always wanted to do cancer research since I was little. And sort of when I joined the lab, when I was rotating, she said, "Oh, I have this project. Like and nobody else really wants to do it." And I was a very young guy, and I'm like, oh, "I'll do whatever you want me to do." And she shipped me off to Queen's College, where we're doing a collaboration with Dr. Alicia Melendez, who taught me about worms, and I'm just and I started doing it from there. And it was interesting because I'm, I was the only one doing the project in the lab. So it was sort of like nobody else knew what I was doing. And I didn't even feel like I ever rotated here because <laughs> so it was really there. But I ended up liking it. Um, they're a pretty easy model because, like, if something goes wrong, like, we have stocks that everybody we could just toss the plate down and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I said, they, really, they grow really quickly. So if you need worms, like, within three days, you'll have what you want.
0: In a New York Times article written about Barganetti a few years ago, She's quoted as saying she suspects she'd be further along in her cancer research if she decided to stay at Columbia or another private institution where teaching wasn't such a big focus. But when I ask her about it, she says it's a worthwhile
1: sacrifice. I'm really, really happy with my decision to be here. It's a great place to be. I love the students. I love my lab. I love everything except not getting the the perks of more money and tuition for my kids you know there's just no perks in this environment Mm -hmm. and that's that's a really unfortunate piece and sometimes there's not huge respect for people who teach at public institutions but the students are as good and often better, I think, than the students who are at private institutions. They're, they're just so bright, and they're so committed, and they're so excited, and they're, they're real. You know, they're here. They're, n- none of these students are here because their parents are making them go to college. They are absolutely, genuinely excited to be working every day.
0: Check out scienceandthecity.org for a link to Barganetti's lab. For Science and the City, I'm Alana Rangi. That's it for this week. If you can't get enough of Science in the City, you should try following us on Twitter. You can find us online at www.twitter.com slash City. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. That means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our website, for more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we'd love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.